Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we'll be exploring the links between Lego and physics. We'll hear about how physicists use Lego to communicate their work, but we'll also hear about something truly world-beating, the coldest Lego in the world. This episode of the podcast is supported by Teledyne Princeton Instruments, which also produces the Science Off-Camera podcast. Hi, I am Sebastian Remy and I host the podcast Science Off-Camera, where I talk with scientists from around the world about their research, their interests and what drives them. These 2D materials, I would say they have democratized the materials aspect of doing research. I did really, really find, I think, what I love in science, which is hands-on experimental physics. I'm like a kid in a candy store and can't explain how interesting this is to me. Join me and subscribe to Science Off Camera on your favorite podcast platform. Now, I promised you an episode on physics and Lego back in September this year, but it was delayed by that fascinating discovery of the potential signs of life in the clouds of Venus. But I don't want to delay any more. So here we go with Lego and physics. And there's no better place to start than the man who on Twitter is known as the Lego physics guy. It's Lewis Matheson. Hello, yes. My name is Lewis Matheson and I used to be a physics teacher but now I make physics videos aimed at students and also teachers. I'm not going to claim any credit for being the first person to use Lego alongside my teaching, but I found some resources when I was a a frontline teacher um, from Queen Mary University um, looking at building a universe, and I kind of took this idea and I sort of ran with it, really, and then it just got out of hand. A lot of physics, you know, Lego doesn't really help explain it that well. You know, it's, there's a lot of stuff where you have to have the students doing hands-on practical activities, using the apparatus as they should be doing. But there are definitely some areas where Lego can really help students understand. Just to say that for those of you who are not in the UK, GCSEs are the exams that students tend to take at around 16 and A-levels are those that they take around 18. I suppose it's sometimes the topics that as teachers we find a little bit boring to teach the students because you've got to remember that students doing GCSEs or um, even maybe when they come into secondary school, there's lots of topics that we might be really interested in as scientists, but you've got all sorts of students there and maybe teaching about what's inside the atom, about the protons and neutrons. They can't see them, they can't visualise them, they can't touch them and you can't really get any hands-on practical work with those students. And I found that by using Lego, it was something that was quite approachable and it really can explain quite difficult concepts, you know, beyond what we teach at A-level. A lot of the chemists use Molymod, so they have different coloured balls and they have these, uh, you know, you you can make molecules, you can make, you know, you can have oxygen molecules and you have carbon dioxide. And that's brilliant because it can, you know, show you how things bond together and how, you know, a lot of the kind of chemical elements actually work. But I suppose with Lego, it's quite universal. It's something that students are generally quite familiar with. Uh, and this is boys and girls, because, you know, every, every child often has access to Lego, even if it's only a small amount at home. It's something that's tactile. They can they understand how to put it together. And that means when you introduce it into the classroom, it's something they're familiar with. It's not this special scientific apparatus. It's something from everyday life. And I'm a real fan of using everyday objects in teaching. So... You don't have to have um, super expensive lasers and and things like that. You can use bits of cardboard, bits of string, rubber bands. 
you can use hands-on activities to explain really and actually you know demonstrate really difficult concepts in physics and I think Lego is just part of that it's also colourful and to be honest um, if you put a bowl of Lego out students will play with it they'll probably learn something as they're doing that and therefore it's an easy win when it comes to teaching so we're not talking about things which are really expensive we're just talking about your um, red and uh, yellow two by two bricks and you can use those to um, start to maybe look at different particles like protons and neutrons. You can use it to show maybe the nucleus of an atom and how you've got the particles together there. You can also show uh, radioactive decay where you've got maybe two protons and two neutrons which are ejected from that nucleus. And with Lego, you can actually show that happening. But I suppose the other thing about Lego is that, um, you know, you can actually buy some amazing things. You know, the Apollo spacecraft, the Saturn. There's uh, even the International Space Station, there are things that as soon as you get out in front of a class, people love it. And not just the, the students, the parents and the teachers really enjoy it as well. And I think it can really bring things to life because a lot of stuff that we're doing in class, we're talking about things that uh, we might show on a video, but it's not the same as students actually seeing a model there and there, um, there and then. So I, I do think that Lego can really bring things to life and just get students engaged. I mean, are you a bit of a Lego nerd anyway? Would you be sort of buying the International Space Station set, whether you were using it in teaching or not? Do you know what? I, I played with Lego when I was a child um, and then I kind of grew out of it. You know, I, I went to university. I, I had a proper job where I worked as an engineer for a while. So, um, you know, I became a proper grown up. And then I suppose using it in my teaching, that kind of brought me back into the world. And then I guess I went down this rabbit hole and there are these adult fans of Lego. I suppose now a lot of us, uh, we have a bit more disposable income. It reminds us of our childhood. And there's a really big market for adults who are actually buying these models. So for me, it's kind of brought me back into that world. In actual fact, um, I was contacted by an American YouTube channel called Beyond the Brick. And I made a video about tensegrity. So this is structures which have objects in tension which appear to be floating in midair. And they had some videos about it and they asked me as a physics teacher to try and explain the physics. And it's, it's all standard stuff. It's about moments, it's about equilibrium, the kind of thing that GCSE students are being taught up and down the country. But by introducing some of the basic high school physics using Lego, I mean, that video has had over half a million views now. And I think there's, there's definitely, you know, a real movement of adults playing with this. And to be honest, it is quite fun. It's something that you can lose yourself in. And like I said, you can take it at a very simple level, but you can also use it in your teaching to explain about the quarks, you know, the quark structure of protons and neutrons. You can talk about antimatter. You can talk about muons and all of these things, which we never do at GCSE, we might brush on when it comes to teaching at A-level, but you can take the ideas, you know, well beyond, um, you know, up to the kind of undergraduate level physics. And it's, it's just a way of bringing it to life. I mean, it's, it's a really just a way of modelling the world. I mean, how many times on a whiteboard have teachers drawn some circles to represent the protons and neutrons in that nucleus? Well, that's just a model, just like the Lego is a way of modelling what we can't actually see with visible light. And I think if it's one thing that can help students understand and bring it to life, I can't see any downsides to using it in the teaching at all. OK, difficult question for a podcast, but how do you use Lego to teach 
antimatter. The way I've I've done it, and again, this is just my approach, and there's again, there's no right or wrong way of doing things. Um, in my videos, I tend to to have the camera pointing down at the table quite a lot, so it's a bit like using a visualizer, and I tend to have um, normal matter pointing upwards, but if I talk about antimatter, I just simply turn the Lego upside down, so you can see it's got the same mass, it's got kind of similar properties, but there's something a bit different about it. And also that meant that if you talk about maybe the quark structure where you've got um, a quark and an anti-quark which are uh, joined together, you can then use a bit of blue tack to actually, uh, I guess, blue tack two bits of Lego together to make some of these, these other particles. Now again, it's like any model that we use in physics, you know, even if we're talking about light being a wave or light being a particle, there are some limitations. And if you're talking about this with a, you know, a, a very... Um, uh, very able students or you know particularly willing class they will kind of ask you questions and they can say well actually that doesn't work or there's a limitation to that model just like for example uh, we're talking about color charge I mean trying to explain color charge with lego that's very difficult but maybe that's how you get students to learn they're kind of they're questioning things and they're kind of looking at the limitations while realizing that that model can still explain a lot of the world around us. You mentioned some of the models that can be used and seeing these amazing structures that people have built to explore the universe and do physics with you know if anybody from lego ideas or anything is listening to this podcast and you had their ear what would you want to see from lego i suppose what i would like to see is more satellites and the kind of things that people talk all about all the time so we've had the international space station uh, what about sputnik or what about the mir space station what about um the kind of things that I suppose they'd not only be popular because people know about them in popular culture, but maybe the, the kind of new satellite missions which are being launched. If we're going to be going to maybe try and explore the atmosphere of other planets, what are the things that we're sending out there? And could that be made in Lego to kind of really capture the imagination of a, a whole generation of, of, of children growing up at the moment? Or if there was, for example, Rocket Lab proposing a mission to Venus to test the theory that maybe there are signs of life. Well, exactly. But, you know, that would be the thing that, you know, um, adults would be interested in it. There'd be s students interested in it. You could get it into schools. I mean, why not send that to every school in the UK and then you'd know that every child had maybe seen that model somewhere in their science department. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, a teacher could just grab from the prep room. They could maybe use it to explain about some of the physics they're teaching. But then you, you're encouraging for, you know, not a huge amount of money, a whole generation of students to be interested in space exploration and associated technologies that goes with that, the things that then lead on to everyday technology in, in, in our daily lives. So I definitely think if there could be more space Lego about real missions, that would be absolutely fantastic. Well, you won't find me arguing with that. And thank you very much for uh, talking to me. Do you have any final thoughts? Just for all the teachers who are actually working on the front line at the moment, you know, with all the restrictions in terms of the lack of practical work, I think it's it's a really difficult place for teachers at the moment, and I know they're doing their best just to, to keep on going with it because the students really appreciate it. And if you want to find anything more about what I've done, just head over to physicsonline.com where you can find hundreds more videos that explain lots and lots of bits of everyday physics. That's Lewis Matheson, the Lego physics guy on Twitter. And the idea for this podcast about Lego and physics came to me when I saw a film about the coldest Lego in the world. I was a judge at the Bristol Science Film Festival and the winner was Joshua Chawner of the Quantum Nanotechnology Research Group at Lancaster University. The humble Lego figure. 
First produced in 1978, there are over 3.7 billion of them worldwide. The LEGO minifigure has been tested to many extremes, but one that's never been explored before is, how cold can a LEGO figure get? I'm Joshua Chawner. I am a PhD student at Lancaster University and I uh, do research into quantum electronics, which will almost always be in low temperature environments. So uh, I've just handed in my thesis, so I've rounded up all my projects. And, you know, the, my work kind of centres around uh, electron thermometry and measuring, well, simply put, measuring the temperature of electrons in kind of non-evasive ways. So it's a very useful parameter for lots of reasons, including quantum computing, where the temperature of your electrons will actually affect how your circuit behaves. Being able to measure that without actually interfering with your quantum circuit or whatever uh, is really useful. And I'm kind of trying to propose a, a more simple way of doing that. And that's what I've been working on with my PhD. Can I ask how it went? It, it went well, thanks for asking. You know, it went as well as I could have hoped. I'll say that. Of course, I think no hand-in ever goes quite as smoothly as you would like. And that was definitely the case for me. But it was handed in, you know. My supervisors checked through it and they were they gave me the thumbs up. So I'll have my Vive in December. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. It'll be interesting to see what people have... Look what how they've seen it differently to me, but it went well. I'm very happy to be on the other side of that. It's like a different world. Yeah, welcome back to reality, I guess. <laughs> but when you uh, you're just mentioning about cold temperatures and your work in cold temperatures, obviously your film, your Lego film, was about cold temperatures, and you mentioned how it's useful for quantum computing. Last month's episode was all about quantum computing. So you mentioned there were other applications for it. That is a good question. So quantum computing is kind of like what everyone talks about, but actually like meteorology is like another big area where this stuff is useful because when you go quantum, it's like, one way I like to think of it, it's like looking at kind of like the pixels of the universe. It's, you know, things become quantized. You're counting one, two, three, four. Nothing's kind of continuous anymore. So you can actually use that to define units, essentially. So if you imagine like the charge of an electron is kind of a, uh, a naturally defined value of charge. And now, I think as of a couple of years ago, perhaps, we're now using that to define charge instead of using some kind of strange definition that we understand at a macroscopic level. So being able to have quantum devices that can like count electrons, for example, you can like have a well-defined current by having like one electron per unit of time pass through. So I think that's definitely a huge area that this is affecting. So you discover new bizarre effects when you start making circuits at these scales. Like amazingly, you know, the theory of this stuff was written like a hundred years ago, you know, um, you know, 1910, 1920. These guys who wrote the theory, you know, there was a, there was a few experiments like the photoelectric effect that kind of pointed us in the, the direction of quantum mechanics, but nothing like today where you can literally create circuits at these nanometer scales in any way you want and just basically have fun and experiment with this kind of theory that no one really fully understands, but it, but it works and it's kind of amazing. I think for a lot of scientists, it's just fascinating and that's what drives them to do this stuff. Um, but, of course, there are practical reasons as well. 
Well, we did cover quantum physics last month, as I say, so if people want to listen to that, you can go back. But I did promise people that this episode was going to be about Lego. And I was delighted to be asked to be the judge of the Bristol Science Film Festival again this year. And your film, The Coldest Lego in the World, won the competition. I have to say, it was nothing to do with me. I was actually judging another part of the competition, which is all about science fiction films. I'm glad you pointed that out, because I was about to thank you for <laughs> helping me. Yeah, but I did thoroughly enjoy it. But I'm glad you did, and um, it's... I mean, first of all, we were absolutely blown away that we we won at, at Bristol. Um, that was um, the first kind of achievement that film had uh, secured. And... Um, you know, it was, it was great to see people enjoying the film. Both, you know, people I know in science have enjoyed it and also people who don't know anything about uh, this stuff have also enjoyed it. So that's been particularly great to see. So that, that was a wonderful experience, absolutely. While I've been working at Lancaster, you just get introduced to this whole world of dilution refrigeration and these wonderful pieces of equipment that just do these mind-boggling things. A lot of people I know in Lancaster outside of the department just don't really realize this is absolutely kind of amazing place right here so i was really determined to say this is in lancaster this is what goes on this is dilution refrigeration and that was definitely one of like driving forces when i was making the film can you just give us a quick run through of the film yeah so the the film essentially documents uh this uh, projects to cool down Lego and Lego Lego bricks, and it covers the equipment we use, the department that it's that it's done in. It, it explains like the Kelvin scale, so it's meant to be basically an introduction to low temperature physics for people, and also uh, detail the way the experiment is performed and kind of the results we got from that experiment. Plus, you get to see a, a, min, a Lego minifigure. Uh, go to the lowest temperature possible, uh, which I think a lot of people will enjoy. And it's definitely the coldest that Lego has ever been. Absolutely. We know that Lego's gone to space, but that is a, a toasty free Kelvin, which is uh, roughly a thousand times warmer than the temperatures that we uh, got. It has a thousand times more energy in space. To understand you want to communicate the science that you're doing, let people know about what you're doing, but why Lego? It kind of came about... I want to use the word organically, kind of naturally just sort of came together. Um, I remember, well, first of all, I'd say like, like Lancaster, there's this kind of great environment where you just sort of throw ideas about and this kind of stuff can happen. So I was actually at a pub uh, with Dima, who's one of the um, low temperature academics at Lancaster. And he was kind of aware of some of the filmmaking stuff that I've done before with Lego. So I've done stop motion stuff in the past. He kind of said, there's a world record here for the taking if you just cool down a Lego figure in the fridge. You know, it's as simple as just put it in the fridge, have a thermal cycle, and you've done it. And I can make a video about it because I have, you know, an audience on YouTube. Um, so that was kind of like the initial spark. And at the time, I was kind of, you know, <laughs> battling with my PhD, trying to get my projects to work. So I thought, oh, you know, it's a nice idea. I'll, I'll do it when possible. So I sort of waited for a bit and um, like later Dima came back, back to me again and was just like, you know, there's some space in our fridge. So I, I work in a sort of different lab to the, the ULT one. The fridge that he was talking about was actually, it's built at Lancaster and it's the coldest one at Lancaster. 
and therefore it's one of the coldest in the world. You know, it reaches almost a millikelvin in, in temperature. So this was just an opportunity that I couldn't pass up because it's actually quite difficult to get stuff in there because it's, you know, used for all kinds of uh, crazy stuff. It's in high demand, basically, and it takes a lot of work to cool it down. So I was like, yes, let's do this. Dima, being the brilliant scientist he is, in about, in like one morning, had whipped up this kind of apparatus to fit at the bottom of the fridge that would measure the thermal conductivity. I donated four Lego blocks to mount into this system, and the idea was to measure the thermal conductivity from the top to the bottom. And I'm going to be honest, like, we didn't really expect anything, but we knew plastics were good insulators and stuff, but we didn't expect anything. We thought, you know, it'll be fun. We can get the value and say we've called a Lego figure to the world's coldest temperature. And basically from then on, it became a bit of a runaway train because when we got the results back, I sort of analysed the results and, you know, the thermal conductivity value for this block, when you consider its size, was like an order of magnitude lower than, you know, the kind of commercially available options that are used by most people today. And we were just kind of like, oh, like that's a publishable result right there. At that, from then on, I was spent my time writing this paper that was, it was so bizarre. Like, you know, up to then I'd just been working on like quantum electronics stuff. Then here I was sat in a coffee shop writing a paper about Lego being called. It was just very odd. Anyway, I, I put together the draft of the paper and it came to the point where we we're gonna share it with the rest of the, the like the group, the URT group. Um, which was a bit of a, a kind of dramatic moment because I don't think many of them have been quite aware. So, you know, people knew we kind of put some Lego in the fridge at some point and, you know, they're kind of waiting for it to just get out of the way so they could put their experiments in again. And I sent this paper around and the next morning I went into my lab and there was about probably like all of the ULT academics that I knew was just waiting out for me at the door, basically, just like... This paper, you know, everyone with a different opinion, you know, some saying, you can't be saying this, this isn't right. And then lots of people saying, this is like brilliant. I've been saying we should do this kind of stuff all, for ages. So uh, there's just this amazing moment where suddenly I'd realised this paper was kind of going to go somewhere. But those people who were complaining about it, was it because it was Lego? Yes, absolutely. It, I mean, it... I, I don't. People, no one complained about it. No one complained about it. You know, at Lancaster, um, you know, kind of... People have free to experiment any way they want. But, you know, there was definitely scepticism, which is, to be honest, perfectly warranted. I was sceptical. You know, I didn't think anything this good would have come from it. As I said, like, having uh, space in the, the, the Lancaster-built fridges, you know, there's so much effort and money that goes into running those systems that, you know, every experiment is carefully chosen. So to say, we've whacked some Lego into the bottom of the fridge, you know... It just seems like, you know, wh why? Why are we doing this again? Anyway, uh, as we know now, the um, the results were good, so it was definitely worth having a go. Essentially, from a, from a more science point of view, what is interesting here is how, like, the structure that you choose, like the design of the insulator, can have, like, a huge impact on the insulation properties. And I think that is something that has been maybe considered to try before, but... I guess no one got round to it or, you know, the, the, the fridges work fine as they are. You know, we, we don't need new insulators kind of, it's not like, not like on the top of anyone's list. But this is like a quick way of testing it. I mean, Lego, you can buy it anywhere. And amazingly, actually, Lego is made to like 
uh, I think it's five microns of precision. Um, this is probably one of the reasons why it's kind of so expensive um, is the fact that it's it's made to incredible accuracy. So if you want to repeat structures with it, I mean, it's you know it's easy. Anyone can do it, right? And you'll have an almost identical structure each copy you make. You make. So um, yeah, this is just a really easy way to test out this kind of strong, solid void geometry. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about this when we put it in. I was just like, we're going to get the thermal conductivity. But anyway, it's, uh, it's a cool result. Well, that's the way some of the best science happens, isn't it? I agree. And I would like to point out, actually, this all occurred at the pub. And there was like a, as I mentioned, there was a box of Lego under the table. Um, and we just naturally started building. I think we were like a couple of pints in or something, you know, as, as you do. And that's kind of how, that's when the spark happened. And, you know, with, with today and like the lockdown and stuff, this science, this kind of stuff, just, it wouldn't happen. It, it won't happen. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the sooner we get this pandemic behind us, the better. What is dilution refrigeration? That is a, an excellent question. So dilution refrigeration is the most powerful a kind of macroscopic cooling technique that exists on planet Earth. And I think we can basically assume the universe, unless there's life out there that has made better equipment than us. And essentially, so we, we call it a refrigerator. I'll often call it just the fridge. Everyone at the, the department calls it the fridge. But the way it works is, um, you know, the way you get this super, this super cooling power is using cry uh, liquid, so like liquid uh, nitrogen and liquid helium. Now, dilution refrigerators are special. In fact, I should probably start by just mentioning the Kelvin scale. We're, we're all kind of familiar with Celsius. Some people will be familiar with Fahrenheit. But the Kelvin scale is actually kind of modelled similar to the Celsius scale, except zero Kelvin uh, means the lowest possible temperature you can get. And you might be thinking, why is there like a lowest temperature? Surely you can just keep going. Well, actually, the reason why is because temperature is an, an energy and you can't have negative energy. At room temperature, when we're kind of on a hot day or whatever, there's a lot of thermal energy about. So it'll be like maybe on a nice day, like 30 degrees or something. That'll be quite toasty. That's just because there's a lot of thermal energy. But if you manage to remove all that energy, and I mean like all of it, every single bit, then you'd be approaching zero Kelvin. And zero Kelvin is zero energy, which is actually impossible to achieve, I think, due to uh, the second law of thermodynamics. So that's the Kelvin scale. So when we're approaching zero Kelvin, it gets harder and harder to get closer to zero Kelvin. So um, when you evaporate, for example, um, let, let's say you've got a nitrogen and you've liquefied it. When that evaporates, it causes this like evaporative cooling effect that gets you down to like four, uh, sorry, 77 Kelvin. And then when you do uh, evaporate liquid helium, that takes you down to four Kelvin. So we're really like extracting all the thermal energy out of our system at this point. What dilution refrigeration does though, is quite genius and it feels a bit like magic, where you send in two isotopes of helium. You got helium three and helium four. And the only difference between the two is uh, helium-4 has, like, an extra neutron. You send them down kind of together into your fridge, and this will be... Your fridge will already be at 4 Kelvin at this point, so the solution of the two heliums liquefies. What happens at this point is that they, they want to separate, 
So you end up with two dilute phases of, of the healing mixture. One where you've got mostly healing four, and one where you've got mostly healing three. And there's kind of like a boundary that forms between the two, a bit like how you have oil and water separating in like a beaker. Your one floats on top of the other. You get this effect. And actually, when you send in the mixture and it then separates, it's almost like tricking the universe. It's like you've, you've reduced the entropy. You've kind of ordered your system more. And so that sucks in energy. And it sucks in an incredible amount, well, like the remainder of the thermal energy that's in your system. So you run this on the loop and it just keeps sucking in energy. And one of my favorite parts about this is so you have this amazing cooling effect that happens and you, your kind of exhaust, the, the, the bit that comes back out the fridge, is colder than what's coming in. So you actually firmly link the two. So your heating mixture goes in, it gets cooled, and then that cools down the incoming mixture further. So it comes in cooler. So it's just a big feedback loop. And then that takes you right down to millikelvin temperatures. And that's one chilly Lego figure. And you did mention that you've got a bit of a following on YouTube. And uh, like any good interviewer, I was doing my research beforehand. So sorry, I was a bit late for this. But I'd actually got distracted by watching your video, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Brick. Oh yeah! Oh no! Oh my gosh! I did not expect you to be mentioning that one. When did when did I make that? That was like two thousand and eight or something. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was um. Oh gosh. Yes, because Crystal Skull had just hit cinemas. Yeah. I I've always been an Indiana Jones fan. Oh, by the way, I'm so glad we're talking about this. No one has ever asked me about this film. I was a big Crystal Skull fan. Uh, so not necessarily of the Crystal Skull, but I was a big Indiana Jones fan. And that film came out. And it kind of uh, I'd made a few animations to that point, uh, at that point, and uh, yeah, I don't know, it just, it, that was just a wonderful moment of inspiration, the crystal brick, and uh, I got my friend, Dominic Page, shout out to Dominic Page, uh, I got him to do the voices for that, and that was the only time I think I've ever had voice acting in one of my films, so uh, he, he did a great job, <laughs> he had to do a, a Russian criminal, he did everyone, you know, in Jenna Jones. Yeah, great job. But there, uh, there is a serious point here, really, which is, well, sort of serious. It's not a wasted childhood, is it? I was, I've always been a huge Wallace and Gromit fan, like, as long as I can remember. I think, to be honest, like, I still think um, a close shave is basically animation perfection. I think, like, the, especially the train chase in that, in that film is just, it's just perfection. And anyway, I loved these films as a kid. I still love them today. And I was like, I'm going to do my own stop motion. This is like back in 2006. So I was like, I'm going to do my own stop motion films. And I already had a relatively large Lego collection. You know, I've always liked Lego. So it's just natural to start animating with Lego. You know, at first, you know, I'd always, up I'd just upload my videos to YouTube. I was quite an early adopter of YouTube, actually. This is back in 2007. YouTube was just two years old. But I thought it was amazing. And I started uploading stuff. Anyway, you know, I, I was making stuff whilst, you know, um, whilst I was at high school, through my GCSEs. And then when I was doing my A-levels at college, that's when my animation started to take off a bit. You know, I'd only really be making them during the summer when I had kind of free time. And as, a, as you know, with animation, like it takes a long time to put something together. So at this point, it was taking about a month or so to make a full, uh, well, I say a full film. It was like 
five or ten minutes. Um, so anyway, at this point, like my animation, I kind of reached a good enough level that people it started to become popular. Uh, and so then, when I went to university to study physics, I kept it going, like just one video every summer, essentially. And you know, it's kind of weird. Like you think, like leaving it for a year and coming back to it, you might forget it, but it kind of. I mean, this is a cliche. It's like it's like learning a, to ride a bike. I guess it's like it kind of sticks in you how to animate and make it look good. Each year, they kind of got progressively better. Definitely better than Indiana Jones and the Crystal Block. That was definitely not my finest uh, production. Um, so anyway, like some of them did have done really well. Like they've kind of. I guess, gone viral in a way. That's Joshua Chawner, and if you want to see some of his films, including Indiana Jones and the Crystal Brick, then just search for Joshua Chawner on YouTube. But I'm really interested to know how effective Lego is as a teaching tool. And I wondered if anybody had actually looked into the efficacy of it. And of course, they had. So I caught up with Maria Parapilli, Associate Professor in the College of Science and Engineering at Flinders University in Australia. I am a physics educator, but I am a theoretical particle physicist by training. And I switched into uh, physics education so that I can make uh, physics more accessible to students and also to, what can I say, the improve teaching of physics. And I always try to create a richer uh, learning experience for my students by implementing innovations and most importantly, by researching the effectiveness of those innovations. And I think, you know, the interventions are very best when they are research-led. And in addition to being the physics educator in my day job, uh, I am also the founder of a group called uh, STEM Women Branching Out Group, where um, I am providing opportunities for uh, students studying STEM at our university, not only students for the academics, uh, teaching and researching in STEM. So I offer various and unique uh, programs for um, all STEM women. And I also lead um, a STEM Enrichment Academy, which is a federal government funded project. And this is mainly focusing on year nine girls and uh, school teachers because you know uh, this problem is global everywhere right Mm. so you know the number of students entering into physics as well as in engineering i suppose in uk you are also having the same problem right so uh, i have um, already offered three different types of enrichment through the enrichment academy mainly focusing on design and technology Um, engineering and mainly in my discipline physics enrichment Um, and we are studying which enrichment is more effective so that science or STEM becomes less challenging for the girls. Yeah it is very good program because I started that only in 2019 and the target number was uh, 120 only 120 but can you believe we already enriched 451 year nine girls. Wow. And uh, 55 school teachers. And you know that buying in from teachers is very, very hard. So for every hands-on activity, 
you know, we design, there is always an academic lead, you know, the quality. And when I offered, one of the other intervention was a three-day STEM enrichment conference, um, which was attended by, you know, the maximum number of participants, 140 school girls and their teachers. And the teachers and students from the remote area, you know, stayed in caravan parks so that they can involve or into get into the enrichment. So it, it was very good. Great. And I used uh, one of the Lego activity for enrichment. So that is the good thing about Lego. You know, you can teach the university physics students. Uh, doesn't matter whether it is physics or engineering. And you can also teach, you know, high school students as well. Mm. So how did you use Lego then? What did you do with them? In my intro level physics topic, it always have, as you can imagine, always start with a traditional lab. And you know that traditional physics lab is boring for, you know, <laughs> first year students especially. And also I noted uh, from my experience in teaching into the intro level uh, topic is that some students walk away from the topic after the first lab. And when I research into that, what can be the reasons why students just drop out from the topic? Few students mentioned to me that uh, I don't have the lab skills to perform in the lab, or some students are coming from the non-science background into intra-level physics topics, so they lack all those scientific reasoning thing to perform lab. So I thought, creating a richer experience, I will come back to that point, richer experience to the students, adding a wow factor into a lab so that students can stay and connect, right? Mm -hmm. So we all know that robotics provided a motivational tool in engineering education. And if a student from a non-science background coming to the lab, you know, the difference between a robotics tool or the real lab equipment is less distinct to that student. So I thought, why I can't use Lego? Because Lego is more family-friendly tool and students can connect with so easily. So that is my first thinking. I thought, oh, I will design a set of activity using Lego race cars. Then I put my physics thinking into it. And once I introduce this lab, what I can see is that the first lab experience was so cool. You know, when we offered the first time, students were able to, you know, construct and design cars, put the figures in it, you know, change the wheels, this and that. But another problem, moving on, Legos are very expensive and offering it to different batches, you know, can be very expensive. So... In the later years, students didn't get the chance to design their cars, but move on with the activities. Okay. So I have designed actually four activities. Always students struggle with uncertainty and there are propagation, that kind of thing. So I thought if I am using Lego race cars, students can repeatedly make measurements and they can see the propagation of error you know, when they are using like a pendulum or something in a real lab, they get bored, you know. Yeah. So 
I designed four activities. Um, one of the activities uh, called Unleashing Potential Energy, which is using the energy conversion. So I have provided students with a big, nice, um, you know, racing area and provided them with a pullback motor Lego race cars so that students can design where they stop the car. And it is, of course, you can see gravity is the source and then the energy conversion is happening. So that activity is called Unleashing Potential Energy. So um, another activity is ramping it up. So students are provided with a you know, ramp and they vary, the variable is the ramp height. And then they measure the, you know, the time taken by the car to travel certain distance. And they change the, you know, the height and then they repeatedly take the measurement. In the same time, they can see, you know, they, are, they will be using the stopwatch. So uncertainty is always coming into the calculation. So it's easy to, you know, they will understand uh, quite easily when, when we use Lego vehicle, mm. you know, when they are running the Lego, Lego vehicle. And in addition to that, you know, I always, in the higher uh, physics, I always provide students with two different ramp surfaces, friction, uh, you know, and frictional surface and one smooth surface so they can see the effect of friction, you know. So they can test different variables, different hypotheses, and they can come to different conclusions and, you know. And I also give uh, students one fun activity, uh, which is called whether red cars, the color of the car matter, whether the red car <laughs> travel faster than blue car, yeah. you know, then they think, you know, sometimes they said, oh, it is red because of red, it will, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, to perform that lab, I gave them, I have to give them identical cars, right? Otherwise, mass, so many other variables come into account. But to make that lab more interesting, you know, I provide students with uh, the same set of wheels so they can put the wheels, they can change the figures. End of the day, when they measure everything, everything would be equal. Then they say, oh my God, they reach at the same time. And, you know. <laughs> so the hypothesis, sometimes they say, oh, you know, red cars will travel faster. Yeah. And then after experimenting it they say you know no my hypothesis was wrong what i was thinking you know yeah so they answer themselves yeah yeah they need go faster stripes down the side <laughs> oh, <like that>. yeah. <laughs> so, so what's the yeah. reaction from the students oh they said um, as i mentioned to you before wow factor was uh, there and when I, um, you know, step into the lab, I can see that it, it is like a nursery school. You know, they were, they were connecting with their pair, you know, about their Lego experience, their dad taking them to the Lego shop when they were five-year-old, you know. Those Lego, their ex family experience with the Lego bricks they're sharing. Then after half an hour, they are so serious, you know, they are building the thing, making the measurements, calculating the error propagation, etc. But I can say, after this Lego lab experience, the formal traditional physics lab will come. That is when the students drop out from the university or from the physics, because as an educator, I know that the students perceive physics as a difficult subject. 
or they drop out because the first lab experience is difficult. So when I analyzed my topic, I can see that I retained all students who attended the Lego lab. Wow. So that is so incredible. All students who attend the Lego lab stayed on in the topic. So no dropout. And students said, oh, I understood finally what is uncertainty is. I can see how error propagate. I love Lego. This is my best lab. And they say, I learned something, you know, they say that, you know, because of that lab experience. Yeah. And then in addition to that, as I'm a researcher in that area, I compared uh, students' understanding by their learning outcomes in the traditional lab in two, three years. And I can see that the understanding about or the insight into scientific methods being improved when they attended the Lego one. Mm. And their reports were, I can't say that it is not flawless, but their reports were, it was great and they were connecting so well and they can write their own conclusions, their own hypothesis, you know, without any problem. Most importantly, they learned what is an uncertainty is and what, how error propagate, because in every experiment they need to, you know, do that. So they never forget. Is that because of sort of the fun they were having? Is it because it's hands-on? Is it Lego? What, what, do you have an idea of why that is? That's... I learned uh, that, you know, when, during my pilot study, what I learned that over-enjoyment can kill the learning outcome because when I offered that to my physics student in the intro level topic, five students were doing the experiment. So they were overjoyed with the activity designing this and that. So I have adapted that what I learned from that experience because that year when I measured the learning outcomes, in fact, the formal lab, they, their learning outcomes dropped, the grades dropped actually. So I thought they didn't learn about the error propagation. They were making big noise in the lab, yeah. you know. So then I um, adapted these changes for the next year. I made it strict that only two students are doing the lab and they need to submit the lab reports within 24 hours. I didn't give them one week or anything like that. So when I implemented that small change, it made a big difference. They didn't spend time on telling these stories or anything like that, but they connect easily. <laughs> and even when I implemented that into engineering, because I wasn't that happy with the first result, you know, my hypothesis was, you know, the learning outcome for the traditional lab will increase. So I failed in my, you know, I can say that in my hypothesis for the pilot study, but I was, you know, not willing to fail myself. So, you know, I implemented that in the engineering topic. So that students were so clever students, I can say, because uh, the cohort were different because in intro level topic, you know, that students uh, can be mature students, students come from non-scientific background, that kind of thing. In engineering, the same stream, all the students have year 12 physics background, maths background, 
So they are already turned on to explore um, these kind of uncertainties. So they did the lab very well. When I measured the traditional formal physics lab, huge improvement. The other message I would like to say to physics educators that, you know, um, small thing, if they make small things significant, it can improve learning outcomes for their students. Thank you very much to Maria Parapilli, Josh Shawner and Lewis Matheson for joining me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. And of course, we'll be posting links to some of the things that we've talked about in this podcast, like Josh's cold Lego video and Maria's write-up of the Lego Lab initiative, as well as a STEM women branching out group on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. For Indiana Jones and the Crystal Brick, you know what to do. And thank you to Teledyne Princeton Instruments for supporting this episode. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been adding some items to my Christmas list and getting some ideas for Christmas presents during this episode. And of course, next month for the December episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, we'll be looking at physics books. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Physics World.